Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast Stories. My name is Graham Brown. Today we're heading back to Shanghai, China, one of the greatest cities on earth, to meet Alex Duncan, co-founder of KWO, talk about his journey, how he got to Shanghai, because that's a story in itself. I don't know if you have enough time to cover that whole story, but we'll do our best, as well as his journey becoming an entrepreneur and what he's learned in the process, as well as, and importantly, I think, talking about Weibo and WeChat in China, why we need to understand that a little bit better. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks, Graham. Delighted to be here. Well, it's great that you are here because you've got a an interesting trajectory in your narrative, which goes from... We're both from the UK. You ended up in China. I ended up in Japan. We want to talk yeah. about how you got there. That's the kind of questions people want to ask. When they, when they see these kind of stories, it's like, okay, why did this guy leave the comfort of the world he knew and threw himself into the deep end? That's coming up. Let's talk about KWO first so people can understand what it is that you do. Tell us exactly what it is. So KWO is, um, you can think of it for, for a kind of a Western audience, it's like Hootsuite for China. Gotcha. So it helps teams um, and primarily brands and big teams to manage the social platforms over here. You know, the great firewall of China, as well as it's um, created this huge barrier, it's also created a fantastic opportunity for um, companies like KWO to mm. build platforms inside um, the wall, um, that cross the wall and that help foreign companies to um, manage their um, social presence here in China. So our goal is to help Western brands to navigate this very challenging um, ecosystem and also importantly to connect um, foreign teams. Like if, if you're a Western brand and you're trying to manage social in this market, you probably have a very different challenge mm -hmm. here to that you have in other markets, not just from the technicalities of the platforms, but actually under, having the audience here having a different understanding of your brand and how they relate to it. We have clients in the sports industry and in the tourism industry. A good example would be somebody like New York City. You know, the way they market um, to Europeans to travel to New York is incredibly different to the way you'd speak to um, or connect with a Chinese citizen. And you've got to imagine that some of those people that they're trying to encourage to travel to um, the US um, for the first time, they're maybe leaving a second or third tier city. You know, their understanding and what the things they want to do and the things they like to do is just vastly different. And so mm. helping the team in New York to understand what's going on in China and co to connect with their um, team here on the ground is um, a challenge we try to solve. And although we're um, a technology company, fundamentally marketing is all about people. You know, it's about people creating content together for other people. So what we're actually solving is a very human challenge with mm. KWO. Okay. There's a number of things that you brought up there, Alex, which I want to talk about. Let's start by looking at the, you know, you're talking about brand managers coming into China or brand managers who established themselves in China yep. who may not really know the Chinese market. I think we need to just do a quick 101 here without too much detail. We're familiar with the Hootsuite interface and on that you've got Facebook, Twitter, maybe you will have some of the other social media platforms like LinkedIn and so on. If I was in China, what would that look like? What are the platforms that I have to have on there for my brand? 
Right. So in China, um, Weibo um, is uh, kind of the sort of more Twitter-like platform. And then the uh, huge elephant in the room these days is WeChat. WeChat. Um, and that is, Twitter's probably um, a great comparison to Weibo, although Weibo does have a lot more features than Twitter does. Um, WeChat, though, is a completely different animal. Explaining it to um, a foreigner is incredibly challenging. Mm. I used to tell people it's like WhatsApp on crack, but mm. it's very much more than that because it's a platform that um, is driven by a, a sort of a, an almost laser-like user focus. It um, really isn't a fantastic environment for brands. There are many things that you have imp- powerful options for on Facebook um, over in the West and uh, Instagram and LinkedIn for targeting you just don't have those same kind of opportunities for WeChat brands are kind of put into their own little ghettos and given very strict mm. rules as to what they can and can't do um, and so it's uh, but it's also at the same time a very powerful platform it's very personal it's a lot more closed um, you're able to have a lot more sort of one-on-one conversations WeChat definitely has a strong opinion as to how you should um, engage with your audience mm. Yeah, you you say that it's very difficult for people to comprehend what it is. I know you do the example with Weibo and Twitter, which is the nearest parallel. And WeChat, it's almost for a lot of Chinese consumers, isn't it? The the internet for them, you know, that's how they experience yes, the internet. Yeah. They don't live outside of it almost. I don't know if you've ever seen the joke screenshots of people who post a screenshot of their iPhone home screen and the only app they have on the entire screen is WeChat. Right. Just as if, um, you know, sort of, and there's, there's obviously this looming threat of maybe one day WeChat will create a phone mm. and then Apple and Android will, you know, their number will be up. Right. Okay, so you've got Weibo and WeChat as the main players that you have. There to... are a bunch of other platforms as well. There's Tokyo, which is kind of a social news site. There are, you know, a dozen different live streaming platforms. There are other um, niche platforms, but those are the two dominant ones, and they're the only two that we connect to at this point, mm-hmm. although we have plans to connect to others in the pipeline. Right, but you can cover 90, 95% of the landscape just with those two, right? That's the point. Yes, that you don't need... okay. yeah, yeah. And WeChat as well, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it hasn't been around as long as what we're used to in other markets like Facebook and so on. It was 2010, late 2010, wasn't it, that it kicked off? Yeah, absolutely. And even then, it's, I mean, if you think brands have had pages on Facebook now for maybe seven years, Mm. um, whereas WeChat public accounts have only really been around for two or three years, and they're evolving very very rapidly. Mm. WeChat just launched um, mini programs in the last year, which is like a little tiny app that you can launch from your um, branded account and so there's, it's definitely um, yeah it's definitely in a state of flux whereas Facebook you know and Twitter their pages are reasonably stable mm. well, one of the things that a lot of Chinese residents and entrepreneurs that we interview in the show who are in China tell me is that one of the, the, the major differences between Facebook and WeChat is the payments right and WeChat yes. has really got that worked out and to the extent where I know you can go to any country in the world and they have mobile payments, you know, they have yeah. all these trials and, you know, to some extent it's been accepted, but not the norm, right? But yeah. uh, how true is it that people say, you know, you go to China and like you go to a guy who's selling watermelons on the street and you can buy that watermelon with WeChat. Is that 
Oh, true. It's absolutely true. Right. It's absolutely true. I frequently leave my wallet at home for uh, days on end and just purely exist using my phone. Mm. I would feel not at all afraid of just leaving the house with my phone, even to go away for a multi-day trip. Right. Um, so what do you need a wallet uh, for? Well, that's a good question. Uh, these days I carry my foreign card right. and uh, my Starbucks loyalty card, but even that actually lives on the phone as right, well. Right, um, so. You really are getting to the point where you just don't need a wallet anymore. But that's fascinating. So, I mean, the, the reason I mentioned WeChat starting in October 2010 is because that was some time after you came to China. So yeah. you've seen, really, the growth of all of that in you know from well beyond when it yeah. started right so i'm curious to know what it was like when you arrived in china you arrived in what 2007 2008 when did you arrive yes. do you remember exactly uh, 2000 i arrived in i think um september 2007 september 2007 so, so just whoa. over just over 10 years ago yeah happy anniversary 10 years in china did you did you ever think you would be there for 10 years when you arrived? Oh, I had no idea. I had right. no idea. When I hopped on that plane to come to China, I really didn't know what to expect at all. I think I was more um, running away from something else than running okay. towards um, something. Or I mean, I was just looking for an adventure, really. Right. I think I bought a three-month ticket, and I had this sort of vague notion I'd study Chinese, but... Other than that, I really, really didn't know what I was going to get up to. And it sort of all unfolded itself into this wild and wonderful adventure for mm. the last 10 years. So when you arrived in China in September 2007, that was actually just not long before the Games as well, right? So the Olympic Games. So everything was really gearing up. Yeah, in 2008, up. yeah. I mean, that was the first time I really saw sort of the, the state kind of having a bit of a shake-up and all sorts of stores disappeared from the metro stations and you saw mm. everything was kind of clipped and neat and tidy. We suddenly were having passports checked on the streets and being questioned about where you were going and what you were up to. Um, mm. yeah, that was definitely an interesting experience. And then we had the World Expo in 2010 that was another... Um, clean up. I mean, this country has changed just phenomenally. When mm. I first arrived in Shanghai, there were barely any Western restaurants or foreign bars, and now the place is, you know, littered with them. Yeah, I mean, even the skyline as well. I mean, ten years has yeah. changed phenomenally. Well, two right. of the tallest buildings in Shanghai weren't even uh, built right. when I um, landed here. So yeah, it's changed phenomenally. So I was in Shanghai a couple of weeks back with Huawei for their oh. Huawei event, their Connect event, and. Uh, I was looking at that. Uh, it's the, the Shanghai Tower, isn't it? Which is the tallest one now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's four hundred and I can't remember how many six hundred and thirty-two meters or whatever. Six hundred and thirty-two. Yeah. Yeah, six hundred thirty-two meters. It's phenomenal. I mean, in Tokyo we have Sky Tree, which is six hundred and thirty-four meters, but oh. it doesn't qualify as as apparently. If you look at the, I'm fascinated by these things for whatever reason. <laughs> it doesn't qualify as the you know the world's tallest or one of the 10 tallest buildings because it's not a skyscraper it's just an antenna right right so yeah anyway but it's just phenomenal you look at that shanghai skyline i mean wow and we talk about how china is changing i mean you go to places like shenzhen as well or even in shanghai you can really sort of touch and see what's going on there i mean even that short space of time i know you mentioned some of the things like for example you know, Western restaurants and so on. What about, you know, what, what I'm really interested in is the, the, the environment for business, because you're an entrepreneur. Yeah. And what is that 
like for you as an entrepreneur? Because people will always come back to, okay, yeah, China's growing really fast. Great. It's got all the skyscrapers. But, you know, the West is where you want to be if you're an entrepreneur because it's like Silicon Valley or it's, you know, you've got to be in Europe. How do you feel about that? I mean, it's definitely, it definitely has its challenges. It's got this huge opportunity because obviously the economy is growing like gangbusters and you have this insatiable um, appetite for new things and growth and change, which is obviously a fantastic environment to be in as an entrepreneur. As a foreign entrepreneur, though, you're definitely um, you know, com- competing on from the back foot. You do have some advantages and insights and abilities, but definitely these days it's the local entrepreneurs who are really um, mm. doing well in this market. There are you know, probably 100 examples of local entrepreneurs succeeding for every one of a foreign entrepreneur. Mm. Um, but at the same time, it's all about being focused and being smart as to how you build your business. Mm. And you've been there 10 years, so obviously it's looking after you. You know, even though there are struggles, as you say, you'd find those anywhere, yeah. right? Well, I mean, I've only been working on KWO for the last four years. I think one of the fantastic opportunities of being in China at such a young age in your career was I, I was able to do things that nobody in the uh, back home would have given me, you know, the opportunity to do. Right. You know, I was put in charge of marketing at one of the early companies I worked at, and we got to spend all these budgets doing all sorts of crazy, crazy things, and many of them didn't work out, and we learned some phenomenal lessons. Now, back in the UK, I'd have been sat in some uh, corporate structure or situation where I'd have been slowly working my way up, and I wouldn't have had these rapid learnings and experiences and mm. the opportunity to just get out and do stuff. Yeah. And that was, that's definitely been phenomenal. I've tried a bunch of different things and really learned a lot about myself and a lot about what I want to do, probably in a shorter space of time um, than I would have been able to do back home. How old were you when you landed in China? I was 23. So you were 23. Wow. Yeah. And did you have any reference point for China at that time? Had you sort of listened to the the travel stories of somebody who'd been there and said, yeah, you've got to get yourself out to Shanghai? Or was it like, here's a map, here's a pin? There's been a little bit of that. I mean, when I look back, like I think, I kind of wish I would be as reckless today as I was back then. Right. I literally, I, I left, I graduated from Durham in the north of England, this little sleepy ancient university. I mean, yep. if you've ever seen Harry Potter, you basically know what Durham looks like. <laughs> and... Then I'd had this fun role as president of the student union, and I was looking at what I wanted to do next. And I remember distinctly being sat at the dinner table with my parents, and they were asking me these very pointed questions about what I was going to do with my life. Was I going to be living in their house forever? And I I'd seemed to remember sort of storming out, going to my computer, and sitting down and just booking a flight to wow. Shanghai for about three or four days later. And heading down to London the next day on the train, hanging out with my friends, and then just jumping on a plane to Shanghai. But what, why Shanghai? Why Shanghai? Why not? It could have been anywhere. I'd, so that was that. I'd had a friend who'd been over here and studied Mandarin for a couple of months, and he just said to me, "You know, it's a lot of fun. You should go check it out." Wow. And that's literally everything I knew about Shanghai. <laughs> I didn't even think. I, I kind of almost expected it to be a fishing village by the time I landed. You know, I had literally knew nothing about it. Yeah. And then. I landed, I took um, a metro, I didn't speak a word of Mandarin, I didn't know a single person in the city, I got in a black cab and got scammed for the very first time I stepped out of the metro, it was the middle of a rainstorm, somebody charged me, I think it was 10 times what I should have paid. Um, But did you have all your accommodation sorted out when you landed? No, I had nothing sorted. Literally, backpack. I literally just... 
I literally just had a pack on my back. Um, yeah. I had a vague idea it was a, a Chinese school that I could go and study at because my friend had also studied there. Yeah. And um, so the next day, got out of my hotel and went along and registered yeah. and started studying Chinese for a few months. And then rapidly sort of found myself in a situation where it was more expensive to be in Shanghai than I sort of anticipated. And I thought, huh. I probably need to make a bit of money. And so I started taking on odd voiceover work and I did some ridiculous stock photo gallery modeling and <laughs> you know, any, any odd thing to make ends meet. And then I got a, a slightly more serious job and that's when things really started to take off. Wow. So, I mean, your story is not unusual if you change the scene and put it in Thailand, right? I mean, there's a whole generation of people who get their backpacks have nothing planned, just land in Bangkok, head to Chiang Mai or Phuket, the islands, whatever. But Shanghai is a different, you know, different setup entirely, isn't it? Did you, when when you landed there, did you know this was the right thing to do or do you not care? It was just like, right, let's just go and try it out. I just had no idea. I felt like I had my whole life ahead of me um, and I just wanted to have an adventure. Right. You know, I, I didn't feel like, you know, fitting into the convention of I'd sat down with careers guidance counselors and, you know, at a stuffy old um, institution like Durham, they just recommend to you the most boring, right. what know, they recommend conservative to career paths. Oh, it was basically join some large company and work your way up, you right. know, maybe do a master's degree or something like that. <laughs> nobody <laughs> at any point ever said to me, yeah, nobody at any point ever said to me, just go and have an adventure and work yeah. it out. And yeah. I'd always, I think I'd always struggled to fit into the school system and education. I'd always been a little bit entrepreneurial, a bit, you know, a bit too kind of unmanageable, perhaps. Mm. And so this was the, the perfect way for me to go and make the most of that tendency. So when you landed in China, um, you didn't have a return ticket, you didn't have... I did have a return oh, ticket, did, right. and I rapidly, I think within a few weeks, I'd moved it to several months later. Right. Um, and yeah and then I, at what point I, I still had a girlfriend back home at the time actually. oh okay so you mm-hmm. hadn't completely you know cut the cord you well i mean maybe it's complicated i think is the answer to that right i mean i eventually chose china over her right okay that's fine but that i mean that happens a lot though isn't it is that you know yeah. not just girlfriends but friends as well a lot of people have an issue of moving to another country just because of that yeah. right you know, you, it's not yeah. necessarily the opportunity, it's what you may lose as a result. Yeah. I had, I had a fascinating experience um, recently. I was back home in the UK for a couple of weeks and uh, I did a bit of a tour of different friends and family and I got to just catch up with a few people who I hadn't seen for a long time. Mm. And it was almost as interesting understanding how much I'd changed as it was to sort of hear about what, what they'd been up to, just sort of seeing how different our perspectives on on life were. Tell me, what sort of things did you discover? Just seeing how, I guess, my appetite for risk and my willingness to just throw myself into situations and assume that it'll all be okay Hmm. uh, has probably hit a new level since being here. (laughs) My poor parents actually had to put up with this when they they came to visit recently and just... Right. that's what you I want just, to know. I mean, th- this is the, the part of the story that I, I want to dig a bit into because I think it, it's so fascinating with any entrepreneur, especially an entrepreneur that goes to a new country, is even though the story is, is told very much as a, an individual and sometimes a lonely endeavor, right? 
that yeah. you, you have to take this on yourself. Nobody really fully backs you. Maybe people don't understand why you oh, do absolutely. it. But you have to people do it yourself. stand in your way, if anything. Yeah. So that's the part that I'm... Yeah, I'm, exactly. So what what happened there? Because it's not an individual thing. It's like there's, there's family, there's friends and so on. How did your... Uh, I, I'm really curious about what your parents thought of Shanghai. But before we get to that, what did your parents think about your your adventure was it okay alex you've had your fun time to come home did you have that or i think you know that's one way where i've been incredibly lucky um you know my parents have never at any point said um we really miss you and it's you know we'd love you to move back they've never kind of given me that emotional pressure Mm. although i think um perhaps they would like to see me a bit closer to home um and so I, I feel like they've just allowed me to go and, and fly and, and be happy and just find find what it is that I want to do in the world. Mm. I remember, you know, from a very young age, my mother particular in particular sort of encouraged me to you know, think big and just realize that there were no limits. I could do whatever I wanted to do and be whoever I wanted to be. Um, and so I think definitely having that supportive backing has been incredibly powerful i've never felt this compulsion to go and um do something stable that puts some you know builds a mortgage or puts some uh, mm. food on the table or anything like that i have had this safety net that if it ever all goes wrong at any point you know if i get kicked out or i get a, denied a visa or you know i can always just fly home and mm. there will be um something there waiting for me and perhaps that's what allowed me to just go and take these risks and yeah. be um reasonably reckless yeah, for sure. So when your parents came out to Shanghai recently, was that the first time they've been? No, they'd been out quite a few years ago. And it was probably interesting for them to see the contrast in... I was trying to start my own little clothing company at the time. And I think I was living a very scrappy life, doing a you know a couple of different side jobs, trying to start my own thing. And these days I'm relatively more stable. You know, I have a... Um, a, a we, we are a startup, but they kind of get paid a, paid a salary. And so I'm not quite so... Um, not hustling around yeah. between i'm not hustling quite as hard like that in that way where i was kind of teaching english on the side and doing a dozen different things um they yeah. actually so there was a local tv company made a documentary about me at the same week my parents arrived the first time yeah and they so i had a tv crew with me um when they got out of the gate at the airport and so my mum burst into tears <laughs> oh so wow this whole, it was this, yeah. This well, a local Chinese Shanghai TV me for a week, trying to understand what it was like for life as a foreigner in Shanghai. Oh. So that I must have been bizarre. Be I would cringe too much if I watched that today. What, it was bizarre. Right, right. So, what sort of things? Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. Was the TV company doing a documentary about you because they, you know, you are sort of a growing phenomenon of these sort of foreigners who've chosen to come and live in China? Was that their interest? Do you know, the story gets even more bizarre because, um, so it, the whole thing came about, I'd gone to India to meet my ex-girlfriend and the girl from the visa office, a Chinese girl who processed my visa, actually took my phone number off my application and tried to get me to go out on a date with her. <laughs> she then got an internship um, at the TV channel and they were looking for foreigners to profile and she suggested me. And so that's how that whole thing came about. And that's just indicative of one of a dozen stories that's happened in a similar haphazard way um, here in China. And so, yeah, this TV crew, they contacted me, asked me a few questions, and then they sent um, a reporter, a producer, and a cameraman followed me around um, for, yeah, best part of a week. 
Wow. Just my what I was up to, and we were taking all sorts of scenes. Um, yeah, Your was, parents must have fun. been really confused. What the hell is going on here, right? Yeah, I think they were. <laughs> what was it like for them? Because, you know, if, if it was their first visit to Shanghai, I, I imagine for anybody who had never been to Shanghai, that's a bit of a, sometimes a shock, but generationally as well, their idea of what Shanghai and China was is very different to what it is now. So I think they loved it. I think, you know, almost anybody I've seen that comes here um, does see it's this incredible place of contrasts and it's got this amazing energy and there's so much happening. Um, I you know, almost everybody that's come to visit me here has had a, a, a super positive experience. And we went to the Great Wall and we went down to Lijiang this recent trip. And, and you know, there is so much adventure to be had here in, in China. That's mm. probably one of the only things that's kept me here for so long. I'm an incredibly passionate cyclist and frequently just get out on my bike, fly to another city, jump on a fast train somewhere and just ride in the mountains and really try to um, experience the depth and breadth of this vast, vast country. Yeah. So I, I don't know about China for cycle. I mean, I'm a cyclist as well. So I'm always, oh, really? always seeking out mountains. I don't think this well, people- you should definitely fly over. So I was just down in the mountains this past um, weekend mm. uh, for October holiday, and it was absolutely incredible. We found this beautiful strip of tarmac winding its way up through these little villages, crossing this huge area of green on the map, and then emerging out into a bustling, um, throbbing city at the other end where we were able to hop on a fast train back to Shanghai in just a couple of hours. It really is just... And that's the best way to see this country. You get to see the villages. You get to see these, mm. you know, the side of a mountain just being broken open as a fast train, you know, bursts, like, track bursts through it on its way, you know, across the country. It's... Um, that's where you really get to see the contrast as well. You get mm. to see that although things have moved so far and you've got some of the tallest buildings in the world in the middle of Shanghai, you know, back on the rice terraces things are often incredibly basic. Mm. You get to see a lot of the uh, sort of the slightly darker sides of this progress as well, not just the people that maybe have been slightly left behind by progress, but also some of the cost of that progress too, the environmental cost and the the fact that you go to these little stores and they sell the same generic um, long-life products with full of sugar and... um, additives you know on every little store up a up on the side of a mountain in the middle of the most remote parts of the country and you sort of wonder where where that ends mm. it's interesting you talk about you know the lifestyle I and mean, you talk about you know normal people's lifestyle as well and what it's like in these stores you know experiencing like different products and so on i think one of the ongoing discussions that i've had with my friends who and people who have moved to different countries and people who have chosen not to, who had the opportunity, is there's this interesting debate, and I don't want to get political because I don't want to talk politics, but I want to talk about there's something else here which is interesting is that a lot of people say, for example, that, oh, you know, I don't want to go and live in Singapore because it's not a democracy, or I don't want to go and live in this country because it's not a democracy or whatever. And obviously China, as an example, because if you've grown up in the UK or you've grown up in Europe or anywhere in, else in the world that has a democracy and have been indoctrinated into thinking that that is the natural state we should all strive towards, you know, go to the US, it's the home of democracy, in like, yeah. all that kind of thing. But, and then people say, well, you know, you, how can you live in these places which are like that? But when you actually go to these places and you see day-to-day life, actually there's no difference. 
And one of these things I, I talk mean, so, about with people is like, you know, that democracy thing, it's just really a facade. It's kind of on the day to day. It's the same. I mean, an even more extreme example um, would be I went to North Korea to run the uh, marathon in North Korea when it first opened up wow. um, two or three years ago. And that's probably the most extreme example you can find on Earth of a, a sort of a, a tough political climate. And even there, it's not black and white. Mm. You know, we were there for the, the birthday of Kim Il-sung, and it's not misery on a daily basis you know there are moments where people are happy and there is something to be said in some ways for the simplicity of life in some of these lesser developed parts of some of these more um controlling countries mm. but um wow north korea marathon i guess yeah. you won't be doing that this year or has it gone already uh it's gone already it's in kind of march time i would like to go back at some point because there were signs of a vague sense of progress right. in North Korea, even when I was there. Um, yeah, that was, I mean, that's a whole other, a whole other debate what's going on there. That was a fascinating insight to, to, you know, to go and actually visit one of these places that you read yeah. about and you hear about and you hear all these perceptions and misconceptions and to actually go and see it face to face. And that's, I guess, similar to people who've been outside of China and heard about its rocket-like growth, to actually come and see it yeah. Um, up close because the a lot of the stories that get written are just the big numbers and the, the huge um the, the 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 nice stories to write but then actually on a day-to-day -day basis you get to see a lot of the growing pains a lot of the challenges mm. um I, one of the big challenges we see with our business is that you can't have somewhere grow a country or a market or an industry grow this fast without that creating quite a few challenges hmm. and the human capital that we see in uh, the marketing industry that we operate in is definitely one of the big challenges here if you are a western brand and you're trying to um, create a, a social presence here or even marketing in general where are the people coming from that work in your team hmm. because 10 years ago there weren't the marketing degrees at universities here to provide you with a, a well-educated and experienced workforce. So you have a lot of people who have freshly graduated, probably with a finance degree that their parents pushed them towards taking. And once they finally get a bit more freedom, they go and then try and work in a marketing role that's a bit more related to their passion. Mm. But still, they don't have the people ahead of them to mentor them and bring them on. So you have this very, um, and the, at the same time, there's so much competition for jobs that you can move jobs every 18 months and get a 50% pay rise because the thing it's so frothy. And so when you look at those fundamentals, it makes it an incredibly challenging environment. You're coming in as a foreign brand and you're trying to build your presence here and you have a bunch of 23, 25-year-olds with no relevant qualifications and not enough experience are the front line of your execution strategy. That presents you with a lot of challenges. If you were to transplant your, your setup and move to any other country in the world, let's say you move to the States because that's always seen as the, the paragon of you know, entrepreneurialism, right? If you compare that, and I know it's a bit unfair because you, you didn't start a business there, but from what you know in, in China, forget the market size itself. I know you talked about the opportunity of the market size, but just doing business, getting stuff done, like you talked about, getting talent, you know, getting people to work in your team and so yeah. on. Based on what you know, how easy or difficult is it to do business there? Is it 
as difficult as pe- people may think that it's, it's a lot of red tape or is it really pro business? I mean, can you compare that to anywhere else in the world and your experience and what you know from maybe people in your network as well? I think it's, it's really not that hard to get something started here. Um, sure, there is red tape, but it's getting easier and easier. You know, the rules are becoming more clearly defined, and there are plenty of other people out there to help you. There's such a strong community here these days to help you set up a company, to help you negotiate these challenges that you um, you would face starting a business. But you have this fantastic environment of people want you know wanting seeking new things and willing to try things and wanting to get things done. I feel like if we were starting this in the UK, trying to persuade people to try something new mm. would be an, a vastly different proposition to um, that here, where people are actually out there looking and wanting to try things. Right. And how does that reflect as well in the way people think about you as an entrepreneur? I know you mentioned, you know, you, you went back to the UK and you, you sort of you were able to in some way measure your progress based on what it would have been like if you stayed in the UK, you know, based on what other people were doing, right? And had been doing for the last 10 years. Yeah. How, how do they view you as an entrepreneur in, in Shanghai? Is that sort of a cool thing? Is it, do people sort of still yeah, see it as an alternative think, lifestyle or what? <laughs> I think, I think it's a bit of both of those things. Like I, I sort of, I sent some of my friends look at me and sort of vicariously wished they'd taken a slightly more, um, uh, crazy path. Same time, I don't necessarily think they understand um, quite what it's like. Right. I mean, you have to really come here and live here in this strange environment to really get it. Um, I would say most people sort of have some slight respect for the fact that I came and came and did this, mm. but at the same time, they just find it confusing. They almost can't relate. I always, I'm always reminded of that. Um, that phrase from philosophy at university where it said, you know, if a lion could talk, do you think we could understand him? And I sort of almost get that sense sometimes <laughs> when I go back home that although we speak the same language, we don't have the same frame of reference from which to understand what we're talking about. Yeah. There's, we, and there's some things which I think, um, you know, China has given me this fascinating opportunity to understand. I think if I'd lived in the West, I would be far more insulated from some of these global issues. I would have had far less contact with people from different stratas of society, different levels of education. I remember the numbers in China first really sort of started to blow me away when I read something about the literacy rate being around 95%, and I thought, huh, that doesn't sound too bad, you know, Mm. 95%. But then you realize that 5% of people not being able to read and write is many tens of millions of people across the country. And that's when you really start to get a sense of this vast country. Mm. Back in 2012, I remember reading that um, uh, 20% of the cars in China had been bought in the last 12 months. Can you imagine that as a rate of growth? Like people just don't really understand exponential growth until mm. you're faced with the realities of it as you are here. I gave a talk about this recently um, at an advertising conference. I talked about exponential growth and what it really means and, and how that is going to impact the world. Yeah. Well, to some extent, you know, moving to a place like China has unlocked a lot of that for you, hasn't it? In the sense that you, you yeah, mentioned, absolutely. you know, like the number, it's billions, right? Anything measured in billions is, is pretty damn big, even when it's 5% of a yeah. billion, right? So 
all of that, and then you get access to this you know, different strata, different people in society that you maybe you wouldn't have had access to back home, right? And that's a, that's a really important point. I think that's not exclusive to China, that last point as well. I mean, if you move from your hometown and go anywhere new, then yeah. you, in a way, detach yourself from a lot of the expectations and you know the normal behavioral patterns that you're kind of involved in and, and people thought were normal. And, you know, put yourself in a new situation and you were completely new when you landed, like your backpack, yeah. no idea, no yeah, language. Yeah. So you could really redefine yourself as well. So, and that's a really, that's that energy, which anybody who's moving to a new country carries with them. And I think that's why anybody starting out, when they look at your story, Alex, it's like, okay, you know, they don't necessarily have to move to China. China is a, a fantastic place to go and seek your fortune, but just go just somewhere. Anywhere. Yeah, just go somewhere. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Get out I, there and I do remember it. my mother pushed me to go on a gap year. I was oh, really? quite young. That's awesome. My birthday was very late in the year, and she was kind of insistent that I go away for a year before I went to university because I almost, you know, I had this opportunity. And it was just such a, a fantastic experience mm. to go away and really. Um, gave me a new perspective on life. And I definitely started university with a totally different attitude and sense of possibility than a lot of these kids who just literally left school and come um, straight to university. Do you think if, if you were 23 now, and obviously Shanghai has changed a lot, so maybe the doors closed in some ways on some of the opportunities and maybe opened in others, would you repeat what you did in the same way? Would you do it? It still take you 10 years to get there. Would there be a way you could do it to get up the learning curve faster? I, the reason I'm asking is, is for people following in your footsteps, because would that be an advisable you know thing to do? I mean, Graham, this is something that like I've, I've been trying to come to terms with, I guess, for the last 10 years, this idea that there is no destination in life, right? You know, your goal should be to enjoy whatever you're doing and to do it with integrity and the best of your abilities. Like I'm no, maybe when I first came here, I was focused on some outcome, you know, the idea that I could join a company that might IPO or might sell or grow or something like this. And maybe I, one day I'd be a millionaire. I no longer sort of think in that way. Like I, I, my goal is to enjoy the day-to-day -day and to learn as much as I can and to um, not be so focused on some ultimate outcome like that. Mm. Like it is so hard in a high-pressure environment like this where you're trying to grow a company, you have limited resources, you're trying to um, promise something to people and then deliver on it. It's very easy for that to kind of get you or get you down or to um, get on top of you. And I, I've become far more... Um, of the opinion that you need to find a sense of perspective. And, you know, going back to what we're talking about with cycling, like I'm quite an obsessive person. I think to be a, a designer and to be um, an entrepreneur, you have to be pretty obsessive. You've got to keep going when others would give up. And the, one of the only ways I've been able to find more balance in my life is to have multiple obsessions. Like I'm absolutely crazy about cycling. And every time I'm out on my bike, I'm thinking about what we're doing at work. And a lot mm. of the times when I'm sat at work, I'm thinking about my bike and getting out there into the mountains. And that's how I try and create some sense of balance and uh, get some kind of peace. Yeah, that's a really, I mean, that, that's the subject of another podcast for sure. Just that in itself. And it's something that I talk about with people in my network as well, even like family. It's like, you know, talking about cycling is, is 
most people think that if you're a cyclist, your ideal uh, ride would be flat. You know, like 200 kilometers or 100 kilometers of just pure flat, no hills. But any cyclist who's worth their salt would seek out the oh, toughest climbs. Sure. And yeah. here's the thing. I, I don't know if it's the same for you, but for me, it's like, well, the reason I absolutely love climbing up hills is because it's the hurt locker. You go into that space yeah. where you're just yeah, yeah. suffering. You're on your own. Sometimes you could be with somebody else. You're suffering. You're up this climb and it's painful. It's uncomfortable. And people think, why the hell would you ever choose to do that? And you realize, actually, that's when I feel most alive when I'm right oh, on the absolutely. edge. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. Um, a couple of friends, you know, we seek out some of the, the toughest and biggest climbs there are in this country and we fly to wherever they are and try to take them on for exactly what you describe. And it's all about it. Again, it's very similar to building a company like those climbs are a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. We did a, a climb in Chengdu earlier this year. It was 70 kilometers uphill, a total elevation gain of nearly 3000 meters, which might not mean much to um, many of the non-cyclists out there but that is a phenomenal a grind. climb you're riding uphill for four and a half yeah. hours and you can't be focused on the peak you've got to be focused on the next couple of meters in front of you and how you're going to get through those couple of meters and the next couple after that um yeah. and that's similar to running the company like if you're too focused on you know some lofty goal that you have for two three years in the future you're not going to get there you need to be looking at how you can tackle the next challenge and get through that Hmm. I always find that, you know, those lessons that you can draw from that kind of experience is that it teaches you to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I think it's a really important lesson. And that sort of brings in a lot of what we've talked about today. There's, you know, that, okay, you can be extremely uncomfortable on a climb four and a half hours, 3000 meters, but you're not going to die as a result of it. You know, you're going to go to the edge. Well, you could do, but Chances are you won't, right? Yeah. You plan. You're not. <laughs> you're not reckless, are, yeah. right? You're not reckless. No, no. You no. take a risk. You're not well risk. Exactly. Yeah. But getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. And it's the same when you rock up to Shanghai with your backpack. You've got to be comfortable with the uncomfortable. Like you can't read. You can't write. You can't communicate. You yeah. can't order food. You can just point at things. And yeah. most people, that's like they would rather die than be in that situation. It's like you look oh, at any absolutely. adult, right? You know, when they walk into a Oh, I'll just go to McDonald's because I don't want to walk into this restaurant and look like an yeah, idiot ordering food. Yeah. And it's the same with starting a business, isn't it? Getting comfortable. There's no rules. Yeah. You're just, yeah, there are no rules. You make them up. Exactly. And, you know, nobody's yeah. going to pay you. Nobody's going to tell you that you need to turn up at the office at eight in the morning or whatever. So all of that is a fantastic quote from Steve Jobs about, you know, when you're young, you're told that your job is to go through life and just not bump into the walls or create too much chaos. And then at some point you realize that those walls were put in place by somebody no smarter than you you can make your own rules. And I like that definitely exemplifies kind of my, I think, learning in in life is Mm. that it is up to you to make what you can of it. Well, Alex, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. And I think your story and sharing your story with us has been an inspiration. And I imagine that people listening to this show will want to do like Alex and go off and find their fortune somewhere else in the world. They don't have to go to Shanghai, obviously. But the point is, is everything that we talked about is that, you know, you, you can go out there and do these things and not have a master plan, but just focus on the here and now and get comfortable with that. And things work out. And that's kind of, 
a, a story in your life, really, things have just kind of worked out in the end, right? It always work in progress, obviously, but... Yeah, you yeah know. always a work in progress. Exactly. And that's, you know, that's similar to how we build product as well. Like, it's about... It's not about sitting there for months and then planning the perfect thing. It's about constantly reacting to the situation and understanding our users better and reacting to changes in the market, what customers are telling us. Mm. You know, it's really, we do kind of live this lean, um, agile philosophy is when it comes to building the company. Well, so people can go and check you out, go and check out your company. So share yeah, with K-O us at kawo.com. Yep. It's a good starting point so they can get a, a handle of what you do. Also yeah. on LinkedIn, we'll share the details in the show notes if people want to connect if they're moved by Alex's story. <laughs> and um, I know I know it's a bit unfair just at the end, but I'm going to do it anyway, is that you've been in Shanghai 10 years. Can you ever foresee being in Shanghai another 10 years? Oh, that's such a tough question. Um, I really don't know, to be honest. Um, you know... <laughs> It, you asked me on an interesting day because just yesterday I went to the hospital and I was told that, you know, I've actually damaged my lungs from oh. being here for so long. And, I, you know, it's on days like that when I sort of take a step back and I think, you know, what is the the cost of being here and doing what I do in this place? I don't know. Yeah. Like, as we said just a few minutes ago, my goal is to keep enjoying what I'm doing, do it the best of my abilities, aligned with the morals that um, I think are appropriate and uh, hopefully add some value, create some value. That's yeah. my, my, you know, my primary goal with what we do as a company. What I do personally is to, to leave the world very slightly better than <laughs> when I came into it. Yeah, well, you're doing a good job. And by the way, I'm sitting here in England, as we do, just on a sabbatical, so to speak, for a couple of weeks outside of Asia. And it is pissing down with rain. No, I didn't. And it's pissing down with rain. So, you know oh, what? Oh, my goodness. You want to swap? Know, I, I was cycling in the UK. I cycled from London to Edinburgh this summer. And I think I got the only week of sunshine. <laughs> didn't rain once. <laughs> so, I'm sorry yeah. about that. All right, Alex Duncan, everybody. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Alex, and sharing your story with us. Real inspiration. We'd love to have you back on in the future. Uh, before 10 I can't years, wait obviously. You to fly to Shanghai with your bike. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.